Hello, everybody. Welcome to the TriTech Games Podcast. I'm Blix, and I've hijacked the show once again. This time, I'm keeping it real. We're coming live from my hometown. Welcome to Balticon. To my left, I have author and podcaster supreme, your future dark overlord, Scott Sigler. Hello, hello. My next host is the author of They Called Me Mad, Genius, Madness, and the Scientist Who Pushed the Outer Limits of Knowledge. Please give a warm welcome to the mad scientist himself, John Monahan. <laughs> Thank you. Ah, uh, yes. My next host, author, podcaster, legend, and the lord and master of Metamorph City, Chris Lester. I never know. And last, but most certainly not least, gamer, philosopher, and master of the mighty pen, cartoonist extraordinaire, Travis Serber. Hello, hello. Tonight's topic is making great adventures, how to kick <clears throat> your adventures into overdrive. Now, in case you're not familiar with the company, TriTac Games is a role-playing game company founded by Richard Tahoka that started way back in 1978. They are known for such games as Fringeworthy, the first RPG for interdimensional travel, and Bureau 13, Stalking the Night Fantastic, the first horror RPG. He has since gone on to create FTL 2448, Incursion, Elfwinds, and Hardwired Hinterland. Most recently, TriTac has acquired a third-party license and is currently in the process of developing Fringeworthy and Bureau 13 for Savage Worlds. This is the official podcast for TriTac, and we release an episode every week on some topic about gaming. But before we begin, I'm going to let my co-hosts talk a little about who they are and what they do. I'm Scott Sigler. I am an author with Crown Publishing and with Dark Overlord Media. Give away all of my stories at scottsigler.com as free serialized audiobook podcasts. Uh, they are unabridged, so everything that I publish or print or put up for sale is free at that site in serialized form. The latest book out is Blood is Red, which is an eight-story Eight-story short story collection, which is ebook only, and then uh, Ancestor, which is out in paperback, coming out in June from Crown, and the All Pro, which is book three of the Galactic Football League series, which you can order at scottsigler.com/gfl. Okay, um, my name is John Monahan, and as you heard, I'm the author of They Called Me Mad, which is a book about the real-life scientists that contributed to the image of the mad scientist, and I did some research on this and it's in my area of expertise because I'm a science teacher and have been a science teacher in Baltimore for quite some time teaching pretty much any science you can imagine. Biology, chemistry, physics, engineering came within about a hair's breadth of having to teach an art course, but that's another story. And I've also been a lifelong gamer. I've been gaming for, you know, 30 some odd years and I also used to run the game club at the high school where I taught. I am Chris Lester. I am also a science teacher. I teach physics and biology and ecology and occasionally performing arts at a uh, high school, charter high school in Oakland, California. I am also a author of a science fiction fantasy noir genre mashup podcast series called Metamore City. And I have been playing role playing games since 1999 and DMing them since 2000. I'm Travis Server, a self-taught cartoonist, master of the webcomic Hainted Holler at www.haintedholler.com. Uh, I published my first book, Beware of the Boom, last year, uh, first 200 strips. 
I've been gaming off and on for probably about 15 years now and running games for probably about the past five. Excellent, excellent. So we're talking about, um, you know, writing great adventures because every game master, anyone who's ever done any gaming, uh, knows that, you know, adventures get stale. Sometimes game masters, they get tired, they run out of ideas, or, you know, they start to run in circles. So, you, you know, you feel like you've been playing the same game over and over again, even if you change systems or, or change settings. So, you know, the, uh, the object of this podcast is to try and, and beef that up, try and improve your repertoire of what you do with your players. So, uh, my first topic would be, uh, what would you say is the greatest adventure ever written and why? This can be any story, legend, or movie. Uh, in my opinion, the best adventure is the movie Aliens. Um, the reason why is because of the pacing of it. There's a lot of smaller arcs that overlap. So as one arc begins, as it starts to descend towards completion, another arc has already begun. So every time you think you're going to be able to relax because something is finished, you're already 25, 30% of the way up to the next source of tension that is coming. And it's just, if you sit down and break it down, act back and analyze it, it's pretty much real mathematical screenplay to keep you in a constant state of tension and finally give you the resolution at the end. Yeah. Um, I learned early on gaming with the, the kids at the high school gaming club that I had a lot of source material to work with because they had never seen many of the old movies that I grew up with. So I had all kinds of great stuff that I could steal. So if I wanted to use, you know, the Magnificent Seven or something like that, it was great because I could bring in all these plots and all of what to me and to most folks might be cliches, but the kids didn't know that. They hadn't seen the source material. They didn't, you know, they weren't expecting the gags. And so I, I make a lot of use of old films. So what, what would you, what's your favorite? Magnificent Seven. Okay, that's a good one. I would say that the greatest adventure ever written has got to be the story of Odysseus. I mean, you look at that and it's got all of the classic tropes of adventure fiction. You know, you've got the guy in disguise out to rescue, the, you know, his woman. You've got the battle against the giant. You've got the seductive evil sorceress. You've got... You know, I mean, everything is in this movie, this this story. Big, scary monsters, battles against desperate odds, the lone, lone man struggling to get home again. Right. I mean, this is classic stuff that every successive story since then, every adventure story has stolen from Odysseus's story at some point in some fashion. So it's a little bit of, what's his name, Campbell, John, or Bruce? Who was it? Uh, John, John Campbell. Campbell. John Campbell, the hero with a thousand faces. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Honestly, Joseph it, Campbell. Joseph, Joseph Campbell. Campbell. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to go with Lord of the Rings. I'm going to go with the book. Just because so much of modern fantasy, I mean, it, it plays homage to a lot of the old legends, but there's so much now that is taken from it. And it, it's still a, a good story. I mean, it's got sure. the timeless quality to it. And, and even the movies I thought were really good as well. But honestly, I'd have to go with that one. Yeah, that's pretty fantastic, actually. I mean, you know, it's, of course, it's kind of it's kind of classic. It's kind of easy to go with that one, but it really, I mean, for, yeah. for obvious reasons, because it is it's fantastic. Yeah. Okay, so uh, what is the single most important element of a great adventure? Uh, I think the single most important element of a great adventure. There's there's two things that matter, okay. particularly in uh, role playing. It's setting up conflict, and it's also foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. When I used to game master did more for sucking people into the story than anything else. If you're going to run, say you're going to run 
a story that's going to go over three gaming sessions, you make sure you're introducing elements from session two and three in L in session one. So they might not be fighting a particular bad guy in the open, but they're getting exposed to that person's information, maybe see them as an extraneous character, and then as soon as your character step onto the stage in conflict against this uh, this other person, they're much more excited because they're like, oh, I, we've seen that guy. We've got some information on that guy. And I would take it, I would be writing 10 or 12 uh, adventures ahead of time, mm -hmm. so they would get to see they would get a lot of foreshadowing for the people they were going to face. And then when they actually faced them, it was much more riveting and exciting. And then they knew they were being foreshadowed for other things, too. So foreshadowing the conflict that's coming and then making it a really good conflict without a predictable ending. Hey, did you ever have to... There were times where they didn't get it, and you're just like, "Come on, man!" Oh yeah, all the time. <laughs> I handed it to you. Yeah, that was the, the one. The one big frustration of, of game mastering was like, "Are you kidding me? Seriously? <laughs> right. Do I need a neon sign on my ass for this? What's <laughs> right. going on?" <laughs> and when you tell your players, like, "Really? How dumb are you? Seriously?" <laughs> so doesn't doesn't go over well. Yeah. Um, at the, the same time, I'd say that that one of the important things is the timing and the pacing and. Uh, I like using foreshadowing. The problem I've had and the mistake that I've made in the past is giving away too much mm -hmm. so that you have to make sure that you're holding back just enough so that the characters are struggling to, to pull out those details. I think that it's crucial to involve the player's characters in the plot of the story in an integral way, not just in what the characters are doing right now, but in what their backstory is. I always have my, my players give me their character's backstory right. to give me hooks that I can weave into the fabric of the overall story so that when one character who never was raised never knowing her grandfather realizes that, oh, he's the archdemon who's going after us right now, and that's why you know, 16 weeks ago, when she went through this transformation, she became half demon and didn't know why. Right. And so, when I'm able to take these little these little hints that the players give me that they don't even know where they're coming from, and I can pull those together and weave them together with things that the other characters have given, and they my players love seeing how all of those different pieces weave together and how their character becomes part of this big story. Yeah, yeah, we, we do that all the time, our, our group. Um, we always have a backstory for every character. You, you're not even allowed to start playing until you have a backstory. Right. And then we try to weave them together. And as a matter of fact, the last time we did uh, an adventure, we, we started out as kids and ran four adventures at different ages so that all the characters were intertwined and they all had history by the time they were actually really able to do anything significant. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's pretty good. Keeping with what you're saying, one of the things I like about some of the systems, like random generation, some of them will give you a backstory. So if you ask somebody like you know, my wife, who's still new to it and is not good at coming up with a backstory, well, she's got a little something to play with. But I'll go with character. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, if you got a you know good group of characters, well, uh, you know, story or any role playing group, you're going to get story out of that. I mean, you can have your big arc and and you know, your big overarching story, but you also have to keep in mind the characters and what the characters want, and sometimes what the players want. Mm -hmm. and weave that in. So I think finding the balance of all that is probably the single most important thing to an adventure. Right, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. You know, uh, a lot of times we do that as well. We, we, The game master will approach us and say, you know, where do you want this character to go? What what are your goals? And we've had, sometimes we do like, we'll do the big, th we'll do like three of three, and it's just like, you know, three things you want to do, three people you want to meet. Um, 
and then uh, uh, three people you don't want to meet. So, yeah. so yeah. and you will meet them, but that's that's the whole point. It's kind of like I don't want to meet this person, but it'll make a good story. My uh, friend Roger still sometimes gives out a worksheet called "My Favorite Monster," and it's just background information for you to fill in on your character, like who his parents were, where he was born, things like that. And I, I you know, try to do stuff like that too when I run. Okay. On the on the flip side, you know, what things kill an adventure every time? Like, what is the worst thing you can do in an adventure to to ruin it? Make it too easy. If, it's, if there's no challenge and it's too easy and the good guys are going to win right out of the gate and everybody knows it, that's, that's not fun. Right. Yeah, I'd go along with that. I think that, that you have to find a balance so that, yeah, you're not killing off everybody in the first couple rounds, but you want to make sure that they're struggling enough to get the details and to, to progress in the story that when they actually do, it means something. Mm-hmm. I think I would generalize that and say that a mismatch between character level and um, encounter level is an essential problem because it's the, you run into the same, well, different problems of the same class when you uh, have the characters up against a, mon- a monster or an enemy that is just way too powerful for them to, to be able to defeat. Um, you know, if they they're if there's no way that they're going to be able to win without, you know, Elminster showing up and saving their ass, you've right. screwed up as a DM. Right, right. Or, or if you nerf it somehow, like, you know, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, that, that sword hit killed it, and they know. Mm-hmm. They, they know you're like, oh, yeah, okay. You yeah, know. anything that, that takes the, the players and turns them into bystanders is generally a bad thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, that, that's yeah. definitely. Yeah, yeah I, I'd have to agree with uh, you finding the right balance, either not too, you know, if it's too easy, they're not going to like it. If they, they, uh, have too much of a challenge or they know they can't win they're not going to like it also to me a little sometimes the systems can kill it like if there's you know Mm -hmm. the the joke about you know I grapple him and somebody pulls out a 300 page book for grappling rules no (laughs) I mean you got to have you know the system sometimes has got to help you flow through the story and through the action and all that so Mm -hmm. I think sometimes that can kill it if you have that kind of, you know, they have that kind of system, then maybe you want to make sure you don't set it up. Yeah, we it's house like, rule it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Or make sure that you're, for, you know, if you're building a character that is a martial artist, that the DM reads up on the grapple rules, and right. so do you. Right, and and you have to make sure that the the rules are there to facilitate the adventure exactly. and to make sure that everybody has a good time. The rules aren't there to to bog down. So mm-hmm. never let the rules stand in the way. When in doubt, roll and shout and keep things moving. Yep. I like that. Uh, yeah, I stole gonna... it from Steve Jackson. Feel free to use it. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, one of the things I wanted to add to that is uh, uh, one of the things I think really kills an adventure, and no one really mentioned it, but and this can be done, but it's very hard to do, is have an anticlimactic ending mm. to where yes. the minions were the hard fight, and then this guy is you know nothing. The wizard just, is the man it, behind the curtain. Right, right, right. and it and it's nothing. Now, if you pull that off right, it takes. It's a very talented DM that can pull that off. Um, then that's okay, but most people bog that. You know, they, mm-hmm. they blow it, and it kind of well, well, sometimes feel... with our group, uh, Roger, my, uh, my friend, we sort of rotate through DM. There's three of us, but uh, his wife just can sometimes make these horrible, impressive damage rolls. It's like the mm-hmm. big bad. She takes his head off in the first round. He's like, well, there you go. There's like a week's worth of work. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I have an easy way around that. It's called cheating. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, gee, he seems to have found 20 more hit points. Uh, sorry. It's hard to do that, though, when it's your wife. Mm-hmm. I've got to go home with this woman. <laughs> or when you're running a house rule that is, you know, that 
a triple confirmed crit is an automatic kill yeah, and right. somebody rolls 20, 20, 20. Yeah, I mean, right. <laughs> what can he do about that? So his evil twin, <laughs> that was his clone. Um, okay. So, so what do you feel was the greatest adventure you ever wrote or ran? And what do you think uh, made it so great? Um, for me, I wrote a book called the rookie and it's, a coming-of-age, kind of a classic coming-of-age quest story set uh, a kid who's trying to escape a, a uh, over um, an overzealous religious background. And it's star-spanning, and it's uh, he discovers a whole new universe that he never knew existed because he's basically a farm boy. He's But he's Luke Skywalker uh, who plays football and is a quarterback, and he's, he's a racist because that's the way he's raised. And he... In order to compete at the highest levels of football, he has to go join the Galactic Football League, which requires him, having come from a human-only system, to join a football team with aliens playing the different positions based on physiology. And he quickly learns that if he's going to have a winning team, he has to learn how to get along with the different races and then also succeed on the football field while people are trying to kill him. <laughs> Literally. And, and every road game is discovering a new world and a new culture, and it's just uh, it, it's a quite a big adventure. The first book's complete, but then it's the anchor book for a seven-book series. So Jeez, there's a there's whole lot going on. Seven, seven. That one? Oh, wow. Damn. Seven book series, plus we're rolling out a bunch of novellas written yeah. by other authors, so it's uh, did, a lot of stuff. Did you ever hear the uh, Jack Kemp quote? about that sort of thing. Jack Kemp, congressman, and was also a former player in the NFL. And he was one of those politicians that, unlike a lot of politicians, doesn't play the race card very often. Mm -hmm. And when people would ask him about it, he'd say, you know, playing in the NFL, I used to shower with people that you wouldn't want to live next to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So that that's uh, my personal favorite. It's, it, it's, I'd have to go way back in the Wayback Machine to remember some of the great adventures we had during a, a five-year-long Champions campaign, but it right. was pretty fun. I used to love Champions. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. Probably the, the, the best single adventure I ran is for a long time I ran a uh, Grips X-Files campaign, and I love running paranormal stuff and horror stuff because I like that tension that you get when you're scaring the players. And I happened to run this one particular adventure as a one-shot, and it was the, the perfect storm where everything came together. The adventure was good. The mood was great. It was just the right group of players. We were playing late at night, and the climax came right at midnight, and everything just worked perfectly. Okay. So, again, perfect storm sort of situation. Some of it was the adventure, and I can take some credit for that. A lot of it was the group of people and just the way things came together. Oh, so you just, you just formed like a, a synergy just kind of happened. And Absolutely. Best adventure that I ever ran was a D20 Modern campaign um, with a group of players who I was really tight with on a personal level and who had very similar ideas that I did about storytelling and about the role of storytelling in uh, role-playing. Um, these were all deep characterization type people who loved big plots um, of an epic scale that they had a big part in. Mm -hmm. And uh, after two, I ran the story in a series of seasons, um, like seasons in a television show. And right. at the end of the second season, after um, realizing that they are in the process of fighting an uh, alien invasion by mind flares, um, they are teleported into a future alternate um, world where 
they've lost and where the, the mind flayers have taken over and enslaved humanity and they, are, they, they get to meet alternate versions of themselves, those who are still alive or in some cases undead <laughs> and have joined the resistance against the, uh, the flayers. And what all of season three was um, what I called the year of hell, where they had to um, pull together the disparate members of their resistance and pull together weapons and tools and resources and make devil's bargains in order to give the humans of this enslaved world a fighting chance to turn things around and then figure out a way to get back to their own time to keep it from happening again. And along the way, there was this beautiful love story between the party leader and one of the uh, the NPCs who he kind of had some mutual attraction with in the past and then finds out in this future version, oh, that he was married to her and uh -huh. that his future self is now in prison in the uh, Mind Flayer's capital. And in the process of um, shutting down the Mind Flayer um, occupation, they have to carry a nuke into Manhattan um, and blow up the headquarters where his future self is there. And so he has to sacrifice his future self, his lover's actual husband, mm -hmm. um, in order to give humanity a fighting chance. And so it was this beautiful, sad, dramatic thing with him, them you know, parting, knowing that they were never going to see each other again. And, you know, the characters having had to make all these desperate, ugly, morally difficult choices um, in order to give their people a chance to survive. And it was just, it was high drama of the kind that I absolutely love gaming for. Oh, so you, you kept them, you basically kept them on the edge of their seats the whole time. Mm -hmm. Always like, ah, and... You know, yes. doing in the seasonal things so that worked out mm -hmm. really well. Yes, seeing the the thing, the different choices that their characters had made, in order to, um, you know, the sort of the paths not taken sort of a thing. Okay. You know, one character having decided to become a vampire because they're immune to a lot of the the mind flayers' powers, and because they're the thing that the mind flayers fear most. So the idea that she would give up her humanity for the sake of not being a victim gotcha. um, was a powerful thing that the character struggled a lot with after that. Like, huh. would I, is this really a part of me? What would it take to push me down that path? Yeah. Right. That, that's cool. great to have that level of emotional investment. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if people played me, might come up with some, but my favorite one was actually I run a, a Torchwood style campaign in World of Darkness, nothing but humans. <clears throat> and the first thing that got them together was this room that just sucked them out of their lives and trapped them in it there's no big bad there's no you know legitimate enemy it's just we're in this room we got to figure out why because it would keep them for you know the first time i did it i just hit the stopwatch on my watch and said nothing and just the looks on their faces and every you know and then they go back to where they were and they have to find each other and every time they get sucked into the room the time doubles and then realizing that eventually we're going to reach a point that we're going to starve to death or we're going to die in this room and trying to figure out what happened. That's my favorite thing I've run with them ever. How'd they do with that? They actually did pretty good because we're, we're usually a slash and burn and kill everything, but they actually did really well with it. And, oh, so you, you forced them to think. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> and, and I think that's why I liked it. And, and Just like I said, just their reaction when the first thing I did was click my watch and just look at it. <laughs> okay, so you forced them out of their element, yeah. and that's what made it so great. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, and put them on a timer too. It's like, okay, come on. <laughs> so, so have you ever have you ever written anything that you thought was going to be awesome, but it tanked 
And if so, why did you take what what did you take home from the experience? Uh, I went back going back to when I was playing champions and running that long campaign. Uh, I came up with uh, with a, a, a villain that I built a, a long plot line around and thought it was going to be awesome. And like, this is going to be the most awesome villain ever. He's going to be the great foil to everybody. And it was uh, it was a paramilitary guy in a, a power suit who could, you know, blend in with any background and take on the persona of other people. And he was also an ass-whipper, and he was going to take on the whole team. And then I told I told them the name of the character was Commando Flash. And I thought this was like, oh, that's like the greatest name ever. I literally got I got laughed out of the room by my own players. <laughs> they're, like, they're, like, they're like, really? Commando Flash? We're afraid of Commando Flash. And I was like, that's a good name. They they disagreed that it was a good name. I just scrapped the whole plot line. They couldn't they couldn't even keep a straight face, and they were not, they were genuinely unafraid of Commando Flash. I am Commando Flash, and they're all like. <laughs> Exactly. So what I took away from it is market research is a very important thing. Before you invest a lot of time, test the market. Sample. Yeah, yeah I, I like that. Again, um, I was also running the, the X-Files campaign, different adventure, different group of folks, and I had what I thought was going to be a really decent adventure, and it had some mystery and stuff, and it just sort of flopped because once the players got in there they got sort of bogged down and I wasn't able to keep the pacing uh, going okay so pacing became a, a major obstacle in that case I uh, ran after many years of running this elaborate character heavy um, adventure with uh, my you know friends back in California I'd returned to Michigan for a few years and I started up a uh, GURPS game with uh, some of my old D&D buddies from Michigan and uh, I ran a GURPS Illuminati University campaign where I basically said you know you can make your you know your character anything that you want up you know within this point limit and these were how do you describe players like these? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we've all had them. Um, Munchkins? It's, no, they're not. I mean, Munchkins want to kill everything in the room and take its treasure and level up. Right. Um, what do you call characters who are basically agents of chaos? Uh, <laughs> no, I care about characterization and plot. These guys just care about doing weird shit. Um, one of my players wanted to be a sentient plant. Um, one wanted to be a hyper-intelligent shade of the color blue, and you wouldn't believe the stats we had to pull out for that one. <laughs> um, and so it was just, it became... A, very, very difficult to design adventures for this group of nutcases. <laughs> and um, especially since, you know, we had a couple of players in there who wanted to play, try to play it straight, um, mixed in with this group of lunatics. <laughs> and um, that, coupled with the general obsessive-compulsive nature of GURPS, meant that it was just really, really next to impossible to keep a you know, game going um, week after week. I just went insane trying to, you know, develop all of the um, all of the NPCs and work out the mechanics of it. 
And so I then ended up going back and running a D&D &D third edition Eberron campaign that involved <laughs> lots of hack and slash, and they could fit in their wacky hijinks along the way, and everyone was very happy. So, so it's like, uh, what was that shade of color? A hyper-intelligent shade of the color blue. Blue, okay. So maybe that person wanted to be more, you know, what was their, their goal, to become red? Uh, <laughs> I mean, like, what, what was I... the motivation of blue? I well, it was a it was a hitchhiker's guide reference, yeah, yeah. but okay, right. Uh, right. Uh, uh, probably a, a Scion campaign that a few years ago. It, it, if nobody's played it, it, it's kind of like exalted. It just reached a point I liked it, like the characters. It just reached a point that I couldn't think of what to throw at them because because <clears throat> and they weren't even that far into it. But it's just I still kind of new to the system myself and and just building something that would offer them a challenge at that point. It just sort of derailed it. So right. I kind of took away from it, I need to be really familiar with the system before I try to do something with it. Mm -hmm. Because like I said, I like the campaign, like the characters. We'll probably go back to it eventually and, and pick it up. But it's, yeah, I, I just derailed it because I didn't know what to do to, to actually challenge these people at that point. You have to be a lot more familiar with the game system yeah. as the DM than you do as a player. Oh, yeah. I've played in lots of GURPS games, but yeah, DMing never again. <laughs> yeah, I, I took a, a cyberpunk campaign and I uh, had everyone kidnapped at the beginning of the campaign. And they were all jacked in forcibly. And I had this, I, don't ask me why I thought this would work. I, I don't even know what I was doing, but I put them in like the Wizard of Oz and made each one of them a character and it just... It's like it's like yours where they were just kind of like what, and I was just kind of like had all this stuff and I'm like no that's not cool never mind had I seen Tin Man beforehand maybe would have done it that way, but it was nothing like that it was more like the Wizard of Oz and nobody nobody got it, and then I like why did I do that, how do you set out to write your adventures do you start at the beginning and uh, write straight through do you start at the end or perhaps develop highlights and fill in the gaps also do you outline or do you just wing it. I tend to start with uh, a scientific concept, um, speciation, or, or, or anything, you know, that do social behavior, anything that strikes me from various just random enjoyment of scientific uh, pop literature or anything you see on TV, and then research and develop it from there, and usually it's three or four or five of these things come together, then I will kind of take a look at that, and I will try and see what would be a real slam bang over the top ending. Like, you know, Schwarzenegger movie, blockbuster, summer popcorn movie ending. Then try and outline backward from the ending to get to a very normal, mundane beginning where just the hints of something going wrong are happening. So I've got time to establish my characters, and then the hooks start to come in that something is horribly wrong with the situation. And if it's done right, then it just, when you get to this crazy ending that's way over the top, you're like, well, it couldn't have gone anywhere else. That's, that's fun. And that... Works until you write the first draft, then the outline falls apart because the characters start to behave like real people. Right. And I'm not going into that haunted house. I'm not doing that. That's why, because people died there. This is the character saying, I'm not going in there. Then you're like, ah. And then you got to go back and you just keep outlining and drafting and outlining and drafting until you finally get something. And the one that's coming out in spring uh, next year, Nocturnal, I did that, started with the ending. And did everything I could to hold that ending through the uh, through five drafts of the book, and now I've actually had to change the ending. So I started hmm. outlining from an ending, and then with what I had in the book didn't work, and now it's got a completely different ending. Yeah, 
one of my friends, just real quick, but yeah, one of my friends tried to run a one-shot zombie thing, mm-hmm. role-playing game. They saw one zombie and did nothing like he expected. It was like, yeah, look, we're going to arm up. We're going to get on this boat and sail in the middle of this lake until we see the army and, <laughs> and all that. And just totally derailed his one little one-shot adventure back like real people. Dangerously <laughs> genre-savvy. Yeah, that, that, that's the key. I mean, you know, Patton had this great quote about how planning is essential before a battle and absolutely worthless once the battle has begun. And gaming is very much the same where you try to, to, to plan stuff out and you can do outlining but take into account that things are going to take a radical left at some point and you've got to be able to think on your feet yeah one of the uh a couple of the guys on my podcast we've talked about this sort of thing before about about endings and we always we always say when you do an adventure have three endings because your players will never go to the one that you want you know so if Mm -hmm. they do this this is what happens if they do that this is what happens and blah, blah, blah. If they run and hide, this mm-hmm. is where the guy chases them down and makes them mm-hmm. fight him anyway. But Right. And, and also it kind of depends on what kind of adventure you're running. If you're running, say, a one-shot that you're running at a, a convention or something like that, then you can essentially have the one ending and you know assume that you're going to be railroading the characters to a certain extent. Just don't be obvious about it. Right. But you assume that you're going on that, that one particular from point A to point B. If you're running a longer term campaign where you're going to have multiple sessions and you're working with a, a group of people and a group of characters, then you can afford a little bit more leeway to sort of go off in odd directions. Right. I think the most important thing um, when you're planning a campaign for a real people is, um, like you said, no battle plan survives contact with the PCs. But if you know know them who the main players know who the big the big characters are the important npcs in your universe and know what the underlying rules of the universe are what can characters do and not do what do the npcs want to accomplish you know what is the villain after what are the the hero's main allies after and what are they willing to sacrifice in order to get what they want because then based on what the characters do you know what the the villain is trying to do. You know what your character's potential allies are trying to do and how they are running across purposes to each other. Mm-hmm. And based on what choices the heroes make and what alliances they may choose to follow up or not follow up, um, and based on who they may betray or whatever and who's, what plans they manage to foil, that's going to determine how each of those characters responds. And so you can let the campaign grow organically from that set of possibilities. Right. Yeah, I, I find that uh, you always have strong players and your your weaker players, and your strong players generally drive everybody. Or, you know, mm-hmm. we've all had them. You know, the, there's one guy who's going to make most of the decisions, and everybody's going to follow whatever he says. Because some of these people just want to roll dice. Uh, sometimes you can identify with you know what he's going to do, so you know what everybody's going to do. Mm-hmm. You know, for the most part, but that, I mean, that doesn't always work. But I'm just saying that that's usually a good metric to go by. Yeah, in, in chess, they'll talk about you know working with the meta game and learning you know about your opponent and how they're likely to play and you know being able to in- interpret or anticipate what they're going to do. So you do if after you've been playing with a group of friends or a group of players for a while, you do kind of get a sense of where they're going or what kind of directions they're going to go in. Now, again, <laughs> having said that, they will always throw you a curve, yeah. but mm-hmm. at least you can kind of work with that. So you know that if this guy is going to be super dominant, well, how can we 
tailor things to give the other guys a chance to, to come to the fore a bit. Right. Uh, I generally try to come up with just a, a basic story, something that would involve the characters, and then look at the characters themselves and you know, what can I throw in. You know, to cater to somebody, like some, maybe somebody wants to play a more social character, or you know, somebody wants to be the gun bunny or, or whatever. And I'll try to tweak the story to fit the characters and the players, but I, I never really go into a lot of detail with it because we're so known for going off the rails so much that I just give like basic high points and, and a basic outline. And I don't go into that. I'll keep a list of names. For people that they just may want to know who it is, or if they go off the, you know, off the <laughs> reservation so much, then in case they take the good ship ADD. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I, I just like a basic outline and, and wing it in case they go off the outline. So. Right. Okay, so I found that even in Fantastic Tales, the more you keep the story based in reality, the more of an effect it has on the players. Uh, what do you, what do you think, and what can writers do to make sure that they stay within the bounds of reality when they want to? Well, for me as a fiction author, I, the bounds of reality are a, a heavy element of what I do. I don't do a lot of fantasy. There's no magic, <clears throat> no technical magic. There's some scientific magic, also known as bullshit, that goes on. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm trying to make it, it it's like an 80-20 or 90-10 rule. 80, 80 to 90% of the book is hardcore reality. It's stuff that you know, it's situations you know, relationships that you know, and science that you know, and kind of spoon-feed a, a, a regular course of things that you know so you start to accept me as a, a reliable authority. And that, that allows my readers to really buy into the willing suspension of disbelief because they get this pacing to go back to you that, yeah, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. Then as we start to get into the really crazy stuff, they are totally let themselves go along for the ride because you've kind of earned that trust. So it's a bit of a a bit of a wink and a nod. Everybody knows what's going on, but so reality modern stories are a critical element uh, to to what I do. Even going into the far future stuff like the Rookie series, right. you know, which is the a, a big thing with the main character is as he is punch drive hopping from system to system, he's afraid of flying. So he's just another guy who's afraid of flying and gets motion sickness and throws up after every trip. Little little things like that provide a realistic hook that all of a sudden that's either you or it's someone you know, and now he's stopped being a character, and now he's a guy that you know. So I, that's very important for me. I think that, that no matter what kind of campaign you're running, whether it's horror or fantasy or whatever it is, you can have a certain woeful suspension of disbelief, like, hey, there's magic in the universe. But then if you weave in little bits of realism, you know, like when the spellcaster steps in the horse, <laughs> you know, just to kind of bring stuff down. The other thing is a lot of the campaigns I've run are things where you take a concept, maybe a fantastic concept, and think, well, what would happen with that in the real world? I had an entire campaign that was based on the premise of, okay, you've got this medieval-type city, like, say, you know, Paris or London, and what would happen if some smart invented a cure disease spell? Yeah. What would happen to the population at right. that point? And we sort of went from there. So, again, you're taking a fantastic element, magic, and then looking at, well, what are the implications of that? and trying to see if you can put it into a real context. 
Yeah, one, one of the things we do when you were talking about, you know, like magic spells and, and how to like bring some level of realism to them so they're not just this, you know, fairy magic stuff that's like no big deal. Is like if somebody casts a fireball into the room, well, they set the whole room on fire. Yeah. I mean, we had an adventure where a, a guy was in a bar and he cast a fireball and the next thing he knew, the whole bar was on fire and the characters were more scared of getting out of the building than they were of the villain. The villain's like... They ran out because they were like, oh, my God, the building's on fire and things are falling in on us. We're going to burn to death. Um, and, and it had nothing to do with, you know, fighting the characters. And it brought, like, a sense of, of realism to it. And, and it was, like, a big joke for a long time. Just like, watch me throw those fireballs. I mean, they're dangerous. You know, because it wasn't just it wasn't just a magic spell that, you know, had no consequences. Right. Consequences are key. Yeah. One of the things I like about the Warhammer fantasy system, the old one, not the, the new version, is that the wizards have that if they roll you know, doubles or triples of a number on their casting spell, bad things happen. Spell still goes off, but your hair may fall out. You may kill all the crops in town. You would be sucked into hell. Right. <laughs> so there's always that little risk of consequence of, yeah, I can do this, but do I really want to try to do this? Right. I think that the, the importance of verisimilitude um, depends a lot on who your players are and what kind of game they want to play. Um, if you're playing with a combat-heavy group of you know, characters who love the hack and slash and, you know, are going to try to solve every problem through the um, extreme application of violence, um, then probably it's important to remember that the various limits that have been put on the spells like Fireball by the rules are there for a reason because past generations of players who have you have used the realism of what would really happen in order to horribly abuse the power of those spells. Um, so sometimes realism takes a back seat to game balance. Um, and that's a necessary evil of working in any kind of mechanics-based system, um, particularly if you have players who are likely to, um, you know, to abuse the rules for the sake of their own um, jollies. Um, but if you have a group of characters who are more interested in story and more interested in characterization and role-playing as opposed to role-playing, yeah. um, those are the, you know, I think then you can have a little more leeway with the rules. And I think it's important to allow um, some flexibility for the sake of, yeah, that makes sense. It makes sense that the character would try that. It's not ludicrously outside the realm of possibility. And it makes for good story. And sure, let's go with it. i got to go back with uh, probably character and, and uh, like John said, little details. I mean... No matter you know, if you're samurai in, in ancient Japan or, or you're a hive dweller in, in forty thousand k, you know forty k, humans are humans, people are people, and and I think that's the level of it is you know giving your characters like they get a letter from home or you know a bid from home, you know something like that, or like he said they trip, they walk into a door or you know, somebody bumps them, just the little things like that. Mm -hmm. No matter what the setting, those things are going to happen. So, so even like, a twelfth-level samurai still poops. Is yeah, what you're saying. yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that, that's, I think it's what you got to do. Well, one of one of the things uh, we do that, that brings us down, that, like you're talking about the little things, is that um, it's taken a little while for our group to get here, but we, we kept making a point of it, so that when our characters go out to a bar and go drinking, we're not armed to the teeth. <laughs> we may not have any weapons on us because we're out having a good time. And I was like, but you know something's going to happen in the bar. Like, yeah, I do. I do. But, you know, my character's having a good time. He's not going to be carrying around his shotgun under his coat. 
<laughs> you know, I mean, unless you're in cyberpunk, and then you know, you're stupid if you don't do that. <laughs> so, all right. So, how do you make your make the heroes, or in your case, Scott, the readers, hate the villain um, and get such a gets a pure satisfaction when he finally gets his? I really don't do that very much. I, I try and make. In a lot of ways, everybody in the book's a hero and a villain. There isn't really anybody who's pure evil or pure good. The Most of my main characters have some significant flaws that make you not like them very much, at least at, at, least at first, that they have to overcome. And then I'm, I'm, I'm trying to write all the villains from the perspective that it's really hard to find anybody in this planet who's going to say, you know what, I'm an evil Everybody thinks they're doing the right thing all the time. Yeah. Our, our worst enemies of our culture are 100% convinced they are doing the right thing and the only right choice of action. Right. So for my villains, I'm trying to write from their perspective so that the reader understands that they really are coming from a place of, of good. They still have to be squashed like a bug. But they're coming from a place of good. <laughs> their heart's in the right place when they nuke a city. It really is. Um, <laughs> so uh, I don't know that it's... It should be a little bit sad when uh, when the, the protagonists defeat the bad guys. Because you're like, you know, if things had just gone a couple of different ways, it, that's not really a bad kid. It just turned out horribly for him. Right, like like kind of like Ozymandias from uh, uh, Watchmen. Mm -hmm. You know, he's you know killing millions to save billions. You yeah. know, you kind of understand why he did all the things he did. And you're kind of like, eh, you know, it's like, you are the bad guy, but... Well, the bad guys are critical to put that um, what Battlestar Galactica was exceptional at, which is there's two courses of action based on this plot point, and both of them suck. Yeah, right, right. And, and you're either way you go, it's really going to suck, and as the viewer, you're like, that's when you're riveted. When it's mm -hmm. not a morality play, and you don't know which way they're going to go, that's, that's when it's good fiction. Although, I have to say, when Andy... Crossweight died. I was really happy he died. I, I, <laughs> he I really, I really, I really wanted him to die. <laughs> I do make some very thin bit characters, so it's fun to get rid of them. Yeah, I, I'd go along with what you were saying. Is that I don't generally tend to play campaigns where you know people are good alignment or evil alignment. I play where everybody are, are you know, whether they're an orc or an elf or whatever, they're, they're essentially human beings in that they have their own motivation. So when I set out to make a villain. I make sure that that person has a motivation and that they are a fully fleshed out character and have some reasonable explanation for why they're doing these incredibly evil things. You know, they have their justification. Having said that, if you also make the world real enough for the characters so that they have that emotional investment that we were talking about earlier, then they can see the consequences of this person doing whatever they're doing, regardless of what their motivations are, so that they're going to see the consequences. And they see, you know, those options are going to suck, but we got to stop them. Mm -hmm. Sorry I have to kill you, but you have to die. <laughs> I, um, whether, the character, whether the antagonist is pure evil or not, and I've run um, campaigns where it's both, um, because... When let's face it, if you're dealing with a mind flayer invasion, the guy in charge is gonna be pure evil, <laughs> at right. least from the perspective of the human characters who are in this, you know, at risk of being enslaved. Um, he may be a hero to his own people, but that's not much consolation to the humans. Um, but I like playing mastermind villains, player, you know, characters who are always thinking six steps ahead. Um, Characters who manipulate the heroes um, without them realizing it until afterwards. 
um, characters who arrange circumstances so that no matter which way the the heroes choose to go, the hero, the villain gets something that he wants out of the situation. Um, you keep that up after, for a while, and uh, oh, and have the villain put the players, the the characters' loved ones in danger. Have him mess with their heads. Have him. Um, manipulate their circumstances and take the things that are valuable to them. You do that enough and give this this villain enough um, clever getaways um, and they're gonna want to see that dead. Now have, have you ever have you ever run one of those that way where um, they killed him and they were like, oh, okay yeah, it's really good we got him right And then like a little bit down the road as they, as they realized, Change, you know, they realize some of the things that he's done that they hadn't picked up on before they killed him. And like, man, I'm really glad I killed him. <laughs> <laughs> I have so far that campaign is still ongoing. It's been on hiatus for a while, but it's still ongoing. They did manage to lure him into a situation where there he had no choice but to get involved personally, um, because they had managed to um, force on him a circumstance that he was not planning on which was a nice bit of turnabout right. um and they managed to cap you know corner him and um took heavy losses but they killed him um and so of course he had a clone backup but <laughs> <laughs> because you can do that have a clone. <laughs> uh, i just make him a republican that wears puppy shoes That's oh boy no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no uh, just with me, it's always cross purposes. It's like the, the you know the characters want something. Well, he gets it first, or he stops them from getting it. And and you know, I just do the you know what we've talked about that he's not evil from his point of view, or mm -hmm. from you know the people he leads' point of view. It, it's it's I just lost your train of thought. <laughs> it, it goes back to making it real that you know nobody is just evil for evil's sake. Right. Nobody just laughs. You know the way John did at the beginning of the podcast. Just, <laughs> <laughs> just mad scientist. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, you know, and also giving the villain you know, something that he wants, and you know, work just like I said, working at cross purposes, or or even sometimes getting them to work for his purposes. Mm -hmm. Okay. I like the mastermind angle too. So. Well, we're, we're running a little bit short, so I want to. Uh, I just want to. Is there anything you all want to add? Anything that that I haven't asked or covered that you think is important that I've left out? Well, I think that, that one of the things that you always want to do when you're, you're running a campaign is look at the campaigns that you've run and always be looking at ways to switch things up, mm -hmm. to improve, because what will happen is after you've run a couple different adventures with characters, with players, you'll have created a certain set of expectations, and that gives you an opportunity to, to really change things up on the players and make them not take stuff for granted. I think that um, the most important thing to remember is that the purpose of these games is that everybody has fun telling a story together. Um, the purpose is not to see how many members of the party you can kill, nor is it to see how much stuff that you can load them up with. Mm -hmm. um, the purpose is that people have fun telling a story together and stories have conflict and drama and they have victories and setbacks. Um, but when the rules get in the way of people having fun, cheat. That's what the DM screen is for. <laughs> so is there, uh, 
I'd like to open up the questions for me. Does anybody in the audience have any questions or? Change the rules. Change. Smite the character. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't have any problem if I've got a rules lawyer saying, "Well, that's nice. I know that's what it says in the book. This is the way that it, it works in my universe." Yeah, we we don't really run into that because we do so much house modifications with things that uh, if somebody were to pull something like that out, that's when the whether he did or not, he'll say, "Oh yeah, I changed that rule, and we're not we're not doing that." So. Um, that's how we deal with it, you know. Um, and we don't generally tend to play as rules lawyers. We don't, you know, we, we've been pretty lucky. We don't really have to deal with them too much. Um, conventions, though, can be a little rough with that kind mm -hmm. of thing. Um, I, th I think rules lawyering is something that um, needs to be addressed outside of game session. Um, Preferably <coughs> in a dark alley. <laughs> if you if you have a, a a conflict, if a player has a conflict with me about the way that I adjudicated something during a game, um, then I am more than happy to look at it with them afterwards. You know, and you know when we're not everybody sitting around the table. You know, you and me. Let's sit down. Let's look at the rules. Look at what it says. Let's look at the commentary on this, and let's figure out what it's actually saying. And then figure out whether that's something that we like and whether we think it makes sense. Um, and if we want to, you know, if, if we, you know, if I agree with the player's interpretation of the rule, I'll say, okay, you know, next time we'll do it this way. If I don't think that the rule is going to work, then we'll have a conversation with the rest of the, you know, the group that before the next gaming session, like, okay, here's, you know, here's the, the disagreement that's gone out. What do we think as a party? Because... Ultimately, the purpose here is for everybody yeah. to have fun. Right, we're all playing this game. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I don't do um, arguments with rules lawyers during the gaming session. Um, you refer back to the first rule on the page of most um, gaming books, which says that the DM's word is law, and don't let it disrupt the flow of the the show. Cool, excellent. Well, um, what I'd like you all to. I know you said something before, but if you want to plug anything that you're that, that's upcoming, just you know, you can go ahead and say it again. Or uh, this is Scott again. Go to scottsigler.com for free audiobooks, and go to podiobooks.com, p-o-d-i-o-b-o-o-k-s.com for over 400 free audiobooks, mostly author read, and about 10 of my things are on there, and you can download the whole thing and have at it. Uh, again, this is John, and if you're interested in They Called Me Mad, Genius, Madness, and the Scientist Who Pushed the Outer Limits of Knowledge, it's available in bookstores and available on Amazon and wide, widely uh, different uh, electronic ebooks. This is Chris Lester. You can find my stuff at www.metamorcity.com. Uh, you can also find me in iTunes under Chris Lester or Metamore City. Um, there are currently out a, a variety of short stories and novellas and one full-length novel. Um, the next Metamore City novel <clears throat> is coming out in ebook before the end of the year and um, hope to begin issuing the podcast of that in early 2012. Cool. Uh, this is Travis one last time. It, you can find the, my webcomic at www.haintedhollerer.com. Uh, first book's available. You can catch me at a convention this year. Next one I'll be at Centervention or available through Amazon.com. 
I hope you check it out. <clears throat> excellent, excellent. I'd like to thank you all for coming. Uh, check out TriTac Games at TriTac, T-R-I-T-A-C, games.com. Uh, we also have a podcast every week at tritacsystems.podbean.com or simply go to iTunes and type in keyword TriTac. Uh, and we're also on Facebook. So uh, thank you all for coming and have a good night. Thank you. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.